You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I cannot tell you how happy I am that you are listening. Back in the summer, a bipartisan Save Our Stages Act was introduced by Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar and Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn to establish a $10 billion grant program to support the live music industry. The warning issued was that in the eventuality of a shutdown of six months or longer, and without any meaningful federal assistance, 90% of the National Independent Venue Association's member venues would fold permanently. As of this week, 147 U.S. senators and representatives have become co-sponsors of the legislation, including Roy Blunt of Missouri, but excluding Senator Josh Hawley and Representative Vicki Hartzler. And nearly two million letters of support have been sent by fans of live music and constituents across all 50 states. It's impossible to imagine a Columbia without the Roots and Blues Festival or the Blue Note or Rose Music Hall, but they, like most other live music venues around the country or events, have lost nearly 100% of their revenue since March. It's a dire situation. But if you haven't already visited SaveOurStages.com to send letters to Congress and add your name to the two million other music fans, it is not too late. On this week's show, I chat to Michael Donovan, the Executive Director of the Missouri Arts Council, about a program they have introduced called Missouri Arts Safe to help venues reopen safely at a time that is right for their community. And I spend a delicious half hour with local singer-songwriter Audra Sergal to talk to her about what she's been missing in the absence of live performances and about her new EP that comes out tomorrow. Let's start today's art journey with the Missouri Art Council's Michael Donovan and a look at what is happening within our state arts agency to support the industry at this time. Good morning, Michael, and welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you, Diana. Now, last time we spoke was March the 20th, and it feels like that was pretty much the cusp of the old world. And time kind of has a strange elasticity this year. So although five months sounds like a considerable time span, and although it feels like the planet has traversed eons in that five months, we are also in more or less the same position we were back in March with very limited arts activity, many arts venues still shuttered, and an arts industry that is largely decimated all around the world. And at that time, back in late March, I think most of the country was about to go into lockdown or had just gone into lockdown. And we were talking specifically about COVID-19 and how it was going to affect arts organizations and how we had no idea how long it was going to last. But certainly, I think in my brain, I was thinking, oh, we'll be out the other side of this by June. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't happen. So my... (laughs) Michael, thinking about Missouri in particular, how would you, and the arts organizations in Missouri, how would you encapsulate the five months since we last spoke? Well, it has been devastating. You know, a lot of the groups and individual artists as well. You know, I I can't separate the two because we depend on individual artists to operate as arts organizations. And so I think we've seen a wave of how it has hit. It hit individuals first that couldn't get gigs in theater or music or performance of any type, art as well. And then as we got into the summer months where a lot of groups are used to doing festivals and performances and things like that, they they were canceling their events and canceling their fundraisers and canceling things that really were crucial to their their purpose and mission as an organization, but also to their sustenance and ability to survive this. And I think we're starting to see the fractures in this and where 
groups may not be able to come back from this. And uh, it's a conversation every day with different groups in terms of how they can adapt, how we can adapt to help support them, and what individually can they do to help prepare themselves for this and prepare for things that they don't know what to expect or when this will end. So thinking about those organizations that appear to be the most resilient, what are some of the things they're doing right? Well, I have to be fair to say that those that are most resilient, many of those have more resources. It's not just a matter of of what they're doing right. Some of them have specific advantages. Part of it is may depend on the type of art that you're doing. You know, we know that there are certain forms of art, choirs and theatrical performances that are more difficult to do now because of COVID-19 and other things that make it easier to socially distance and enjoy without a large group of people like uh, museums and galleries have an easier time of it. It's easier for them. There's less prep they have to do. But overall, the groups that are addressing this and not just sitting back and saying, well, we don't know what to do, and using their creativity to adapt to this, finding virtual ways and alternative methods to engage their audiences, those are the ones that are doing best. Those are the ones who are leaning on their board and in their communities who have developed partnerships and collaborations that are finding their way through this, I think, in some very interesting and creative ways. I agree. I mean, I am fascinated by how many amazing examples of creativity that I see just in here in Columbia in our local community. What are you seeing as you're looking around Missouri or around the country? What have you seen that's really stood out to you as a creative response? Well, I think and you mentioned Columbia and I, I talked to uh, Ragtag Cinema who recently had an event that normally would involve their bicycle event. And they turned it into almost a drive-in event where people got to see a movie, listen to it on the FM in the cars, and gather together, but they weren't in the cinema and they weren't interacting with each other. They were socially distanced and safe. And I think that was kind of a creative way to address this. And I know that other organizations have used that drive-in model as well even when they don't have an actual drive-in facility to use, as in the case of Ragtag. We seem to be in a strange limbo phase right now where the arts in some communities are largely open as normal, and just a few miles away, other arts venues are mostly still shuttered. And it feels like there's a mixed message on masks from the state administration. And whilst everyone wants to do what's best, there are a lot of confusing messages about what best is. How does the Missouri Arts Council, which is a state agency, step into that fray? Well, we, as a state agency, are are guided by our state health officials. And they are recommending masking as a strong way to help mitigate the, the risk of the transmission. So I think that's something that we strongly recommend. And it is, I think, a, a critical protocol for arts organizations who are looking at doing any type of activity in person, whether it's an indoor event or an outdoor event. I think it's something that's it's an important part of it, masking, social distancing, reduce capacity, increase hygiene and sanitation, health screenings, uh, providing a contactless experiences. These are all the areas of concern that organizations need to address protocols for them. And that was, frankly, the reason why we helped develop the Missouri Arts Safe Certification is a way to help train organizations as to what methods they could use and how specifically to apply it to their specific organization. Everybody's different, different sizes, different resources, different communities, and different art types that all have a factor to play in this. So yeah, tell me about the Missouri Art Safe accreditation and the program that you've set up. So this really came out of a, a group of arts organizations, both in St. Louis and Kansas City, many of them performing groups, but some of them visual arts based. And they were looking for a way to learn about what were the best practices in producing art for the public during a pandemic. And at the beginning of this, and this started two, three months ago, uh, really did a lot of research, asked the professionals, the health experts, and did research in different sectors, found out what they were preparing for their own plans, and started collecting these plans. 
And pretty soon we, we kind of had an idea that what areas that we thought were important to, to look after and developed a training film around that, that the Cranesburg Art Foundation in St. Louis paid for and is made available now. And so with this short training video, the idea is, is that the groups would then have a four-step process to get certified, starting with the training that they would expect, be expected to provide to their leadership and their frontline people, the people that interact with the public. And the second part would be to look at these universal measures, these best practices about how people enhance their sanitation, provide these dress code policies, including masking, contract tracing protocols, contactless public experience, reduce capacity, social distancing, and develop their own plan. In fact, we're going to have a webinar on September 2nd at 4 p.m. that will help organizations learn how to create their own plan. And if they go to MissouriArtSafe.org, there will be information about that webinar, but there will also be information about the Missouri Art Safe Pledge. And this is the pledge that the groups are agreeing to, to help ensure that they can create safely, present safely, and attend safely, and pledge to facial coverings, social distancing, health checks, contact tracing, enhanced sanitation, and training in COVID-19 safe practices. They make that pledge, they register online with us, and then we will add them to our website, which already has, I think, over 20 organizations that have gone through that process. They've taken the training, they have created a plan, they've agreed to the pledge, and they are ready to be promoted as a certified Missouri Arts Safe Organization. Certainly, national research is showing that one of the things that is affecting people's desire to return to arts organizations is the level of hygiene and the level of preparedness and and whether people have to wear masks. And so this seems really spot on compared to what people are saying around the country is what's going to affect their intent to return. How do you hold the organizations accountable once they've been given the Missouri ArtSafe accreditation or the certificate? Well, we don't have a way of enforcing the actions. But what we do have is a very public and transparent process in which they will be listed on our website, both with a link to their website and a link to their COVID-19 plan. So the public knows up front what the expectation is both for the presenting organization and for the audience that's coming in. They know what's expected for them. So we're hoping that that will also provide a level of awareness and expectation as to what people should expect from a prepared organization of any type, whether it's the arts or or otherwise, in terms of protecting the experience and making it safe for people to attend. And keep in mind that we're not saying that arts organizations should be open at this time. This is something that has to be determined on an individual basis in each community, starting with what the community requirements are and what their audience expectations are and whether the organization itself is prepared with a plan, with a procedure, and with their trained staff and volunteers. I mean, organizations are only one half of the deal. You've also got the general public and their actions. And, you know, here in Missouri, as well as across America, you have a lot of people who do not think they should have to wear a mask or who wear one improperly. I've seen a lot of chin straps, as we all have. How do you advise organizations to deal with the unknown quantity of the general public? Well, you know, it's a a very challenging issue, and I don't know that we have the answer yet. We're developing a a workshop on that as well, because we realize that's going to be very critical interaction between arts organizations and the public. And we recognize that a small minority, but a very vociferous minority, has strong feelings about whether or not masks are important. And I think that it's important for the arts organizations in dealing with these people to protect themselves, protect their audiences, not get into a a confrontation that puts them at risk. So exactly how to approach that, that's something that we're researching now and hope to have answers for in another month or two. 
I noticed in the video, the Missouri Arts Safe video, which is really easy to watch, it's nine minutes long, so it's really not a giant time commitment for anybody to to watch it. There is a little bit in it where you have somebody trying to correct a situation and doing it in the wrong way, which is you know, being a little in their face about it and then doing it the right way. But, you know, I nothing is ever clear cut. And I am envisioning a scenario where a venue or an organization is being super responsible and everyone arrives with a mask or is given a mask and people go and sit down and the performance starts and then the person sitting next to you takes their mask off. And you think, well, what do you do? That's such a difficult situation for any venue manager. And you risk disgruntling both sides of the equation. Both people may leave that event or that venue and think, well, I had a bad experience there and I'm not going back. And that's really unfair on the organization that struggled to put the event on. It's beyond their control. Well, and and I think it also shows us how tenuous the situation is in terms of what the risks are. We know that masking is important protocol for this and that people who are not wearing masks are more likely to put others at risk. And so I think it's, but we also realize too that as we make these events public and we're trying to do our best to ensure that they're as safe as possible, lower the risk, uh, nothing is risk-free, free, of course, but making them as uh, safe and transparent for people to make a choice about whether it's something that they feel like they're they're prepared to go into. Because if there are situations where there's an outbreak as a result of a public event and it involves an arts venue, it's going to affect all arts venues. It's going to affect all arts organizations. And I think that's something that the organizations need to be aware of as they take these efforts to make sure that they're are being as responsible as possible, not only for themselves, but for their audience and for the arts in general. Does the does having the Missouri Arts Safe accreditation provide organizations with any legal redress if they encounter a lawsuit because someone tested positive as a result of being at that venue? Or is that kind of above above the Missouri Art Council's PlayStation? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. And to be honest, nothing is going to inoculate you against a lawsuit. Um, I think one of the first things that uh, defense would engender would be to show that the efforts that you chose to do to mitigate the risk. And I think this is something where taking the training, getting at least interested in what the the risks are and what the protocols could be, helps you understand what are the risks that you take in putting your art event out there. And going through the, the process, looking at the video doesn't obligate you to get the certification. You can use the training just to inform yourself. You can look at the COVID-19 plans to get an idea of what other organizations are doing to prepare your risk and not get certified. The certification isn't required. And I want to make it clear, it's certainly not required for groups to get funding from us. But we are looking at the programs that we have funded and are making sure that they are taking reasonable precautions in terms of using public funding and putting on an event that makes it safe for audiences to attend and people to present. So there's also the challenge for a lot of organizations that they don't manage the space they meet or perform in. Also, sometimes it's a shared space with other groups. How does the certification work in those circumstances? If you've got one group that has it and then three groups that don't or a venue that doesn't? We find that I think probably in most cases, uh, relatively few groups own their own venue and most are using other venues that they are not have control over. And so what we're suggesting is both the venue and the arts groups get certified. And the Cranesburg Arts Foundation itself has several venues in St. Louis. They help develop procedures pretty quickly that this is based on. And so those plans are in the website now and available to any organization to look at and borrow and adapt for their own use. That's true for any of the plans that we have online right now. There's over 20 groups that are currently certified with more that are ready to be added. We're adding more groups every week. And so I think the groups have to determine based on their contract who's responsible for what areas, but make sure all the areas are covered and nothing falls between the cracks. The other issue where you said we touched on this earlier, that arts organizations vary in size and scope across Missouri. And so there are likely some smaller groups who just don't have the means to implement some of the requirements of the Missouri Arts Safe Code or the people to do deep cleans and and open doors and do everything that keeps the public safer. 
Are there additional resources available for smaller organizations to try and meet these requirements? I'm not aware of any uh, public resources that are available for these additional costs. And, and there's no question that this is an additional burden on organizations to to go through these procedures, to get the uh, equipment that's necessary. But it isn't a huge cost for organizations that want to provide a protocol in each of these areas. Um, the enhanced sanitation doesn't mean that you have to have the place fogged, for example, but you do have to make sure that the surfaces that people touch, the doors, the countertops and things like that are cleaned frequently. And that's more of a personnel issue than it is a resource cost. It takes time and people to do this. There is a really helpful document titled The Event Safety Alliance Reopening Guide Designed for Event Professionals, which I downloaded from the St. Louis Arts Resources.org website, which is a, a helpful website. But it also looks like it's an available download from the Missouri Arts Council website too. So I will post a link to that document on our Facebook page because that is really a huge document. And I don't think anyone's suggesting that you have to do all of those steps, but it really goes through everything from A to Z. And so you can pick out what is relevant to to you and would be a huge resource in planning your own Missouri Art Safe plan. It was a resource that was available fairly early, I think in May, and they, their Event Safety Alliance, I think it's called, produced this. And it is also on the Volunteer Lawyers and Accountants for the Arts website as well. They have other resources that are worth looking into at vlaa.org. Volunteer Lawyers and Accountants for the Arts, great. Yeah, it's, it's a really full document. <laughs> with lots of great ideas. So when we spoke back in March, it was before the CARES Act funding was announced, before any decisions had been made at state level about any relief funding. And it was also two months before the murder of George Floyd and all the calls for change across every industry and all of society that's happened since then. And and those calls for, for radical change in the arts have been very loud and very clear, whether it's about... The collections held by art museums or the lack of black and brown musicians in orchestras or the paucity of programming of compositions or plays by black and indigenous people of color or racial disparities that exist in the world of publishing where black writers are commonly paid much lower advances than their white counterparts. There's so much that needs to change in the arts and not just in America, but around the world. These are calls for change everywhere. I wonder how involved the Missouri Arts Council has been in guiding and leading some of these discussions within our statewide arts industry. You know, that's something that a couple of years ago, we as an agency developed a cultural equity statement, and uh, we've posted that prominently on our front page of our website. But there's more that needs to be done and more that we're planning on doing. And we realize that this is something that we can take the opportunity as we go through this process of providing leadership to the state and to the arts organizations so that they understand not only the importance of this, but what's the process, how to go through this. And, and like the pandemic response, you know, it takes resources and it takes time. And not every organization is equally prepared to address this. But I think as we go forward, we were going to be providing training for the arts organizations so that they understand the need for this and how to apply this to their programs. We're going to be looking at our applications and adapting them as well so that the organizations understand that it's important for us using public money to support programs that are publicly available and publicly inclusive and publicly equitable. So I think this is something that's going to be important for all organizations at every level, and we will help them meet at the level that they are at. This is throughout the state as well. There are some communities that are not as diverse as others. We're not going to expect them to be more diverse than the community is, but to make sure that they're as inclusive as the community allows. I've had a lot of conversations this summer with artists who are composers or musicians, actors, about how it has felt to them being a black or brown artist and where they've met challenges. I mean, and it's, you know, we think in the arts that we're so liberal and inclusive and it has become so obvious that, that we're not and so much change needs to happen. 
Do you feel like funding for going forward, funding for arts organizations should in some way be tied to them doing a full audit and putting anti-racist policies in place? I think what we're looking for is this is something that's going to evolve gradually. It's not something that's going to happen immediately in blind-signed organizations who've been operating consistently and who don't have the training and the experience to make the changes that need to be made. But I think we're all going to evolve as a state and as a sector. And I think the arts are a better place to do that than both sectors. I think you're going to find more openness to that. And I think that the arts themselves help a community come together in ways that make this easier to have this conversation and to build this into our plans, build this into our programs. For example, as a state agency, we're looking at not just how we are inclusive in terms of our panel process, our staff, our board, but also how our policies affect accessibility and equity in the arts and our funding. And um, so we look at it in terms of the people, the programs, and the policies. All of those areas are what we're going to be looking at closely. And it's going to be a continuous process. It's not going to stop at any point where we'll say, well, we're done with this. We can move on to another project. It's got to be built in to the DNA of the organization. And we're going to help other organizations do that as well. Well, I'm sure that is very welcome by so many artists of color that um, don't have an equal footing in the game right now. What do we know about state funding for, what are we looking at now, 2021 or 2022? Well, we're in FY21 budget year, which will go through June 30th of 2021. So the the funding that we got for this year turned out to be similar to what we ended up with last year. Last year we were fully funded, but then in the last quarter we didn't get those funds. So that was the equivalent of a 25% reduction of our state funding, which is 87% of our funding. This year we started out without that 25%, which actually was preferable because last year we had to withhold money that had already been awarded to organizations this year, we simply took it out before we sent out the money. That doesn't mean there couldn't be more withheld throughout this year, but currently what I'm hearing is that the state's revenues are where they need to be to sustain what they have spent their budget on. But that can change. You know, we we can barely look out two or three months ahead and know what the pandemic impact is going to be and what's going to happen uh, next year. And so for FY22, we don't have any answers for. So fiscal year I have on your website is 2019, and that was 4.4 million. So what was it for 2020? That was the one that we lost some, we didn't get our final quarter money for. Right, we didn't get our our final quarter money. The 4.4 would have been with the uh, federal money. Okay, I guess that's, that's, sorry, that's the grants that were given, 4.4 million. Right, right. So we were up at around, I think we had about a $5 million appropriation for 2019. And obviously we were down a quarter, 25% from that in 2020 and in 2021. And the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that we've been at a flat level since 2014. So while other areas, most arts organizations have grown in that period, we have remained flat and then have been brought down significantly in the last two years. We being the state of Missouri. Being the state arts council. The recovery of the arts globally is just a huge financial and cultural challenge. Mm -hmm. Back in April, the government announced that it was putting $75 million into the CARES Relief Act for the National Endowment for the Arts, Mm -hmm. some of which went to the agencies, some of which could be applied for directly from nonprofit organizations. And we all said, you know, thank you and what a help this is. But then you think $75 million across a nation of 330 million people is really nothing when you compare it with the $2 billion that the UK government has just dedicated to arts recovery. Even in the Netherlands, which has 17 million people, they put $700 million into their arts recovery program. And I, and I know that our Missouri, here in Missouri, our Lieutenant Governor was just awarded the 2020 Public Leadership in the Arts Award for State Arts Leadership, and that was given to him by Americans for the Arts. But how can you be a leader of an industry that is so disregarded by both the national and state government? 
when it comes to the critical issue of, of funding? I mean, obviously, again, it's it's above your pay grade. This is at a national level. But what do you hear or what do you think is coming on the pipeline? Do you think more money will come for the arts recovery? Well, it it appears that there is conversations in Congress about uh, additional stimulus funding and that the arts would be part of that. We did get an increased amount from the National Endowment for the Arts in terms of our funding for this year. That did not offset the reduction from the state, but it did show that we were getting those additional funds. And on top of that, we have another 468000 that we were about to distribute around the state. This is the money that we got from the NA under the CARES Act. And we're not withholding any of that money. All of that will be distributed to organizations in the state that are primarily presenting and producing the arts. And we're going to share it broadly. Over 200 groups will receive the funds, so there won't be large amounts. But we're recognizing that every arts organization has been impacted by this. And rather than have groups um, compete for that money and only give it to a quarter of them, we felt it was more important to give it to everyone and to make the process as simple as possible. Well, thank you for doing that. I know so many smaller arts organizations are, are struggling and, and we will just be so much poorer if they go away. I mean, they add to uh, what feeds our souls. And it's become so apparent as we've all been in lockdown that what everybody has wanted to do is be involved with some art component. More people are joining singing groups virtually. We've all turned to the arts to help us stay sane during this time. And so keeping the arts healthy and keeping those smaller organizations and those niche groups alive is so vital to who we are as a species, I think, going forward. Michael, I know you have a lot of other things coming up and maybe we'll catch up again in a few weeks and touch on some of those as, as you develop more policies to assist with the pandemic response and, and also greater calls for diversity across the arts. But thank you very much for taking time to chat today. Thank you, Diana. And off we go to our next chat with one of Colombia's best known singer songwriters, Audra Sergal. Good morning, Audra. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I am always happy when I get to talk to you. And I should say before we start that I am going to be collating any moments where you laugh and turning them into my alarm <laughs> ringtone as waking up to the sound of your laughter will at least make my world a better place. <laughs> that is not embarrassing at all. <laughs> you have the best laugh on radio. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and it's only on your show usually, so that's good. That's you know, great. you have like all rights reserved <laughs> for for the laugh track. I'll be your laugh agent. Um, <laughs> so last time we chatted on the show was the end of May, at which point we were all kind of holding our breath to see what would happen as we all came out of lockdown. Maybe there would be some theater this summer, some outdoor concerts, some kind of art gatherings. But now here we are in September, and that seems as far away as ever. So as a performer, how have you emotionally navigated this wilderness time? You know, some days in a really healthy fashion, and other days in a more numbing out kind of fashion via Netflix and Hulu. Um, but there are, you know, there's been a lot of great, great things that have come out of it in terms of rekindling a love for photography and for doing arts and crafts. Like I've been doing these ink drawings that I used to love to do and things that because I was actively performing and I would say doing, you know, kind of overdoing at times that now I'm a little bit more in tune with the part of me that was just a hippie artist that's, you know, wanted to plant a garden. And so that's really been the the saving grace for me is is a lot of creative time doing doing things that feel good. One of the areas of online arts activity that has seen the biggest expansion is actually with choral groups. So it's kind of interesting that you as a choral leader have, have moved into other art forms at a time when many, many people are coming to choruses through virtual events and, and gatherings. Have you seen that increase in desire to be together through a chorus through your work with the LGBTQ chorus here in Columbia? You know, the chorus kind of in March, we just, we shut down. We just basically said, 
we're going to not pay our staff, which was okay for the people, you know, everyone, no one was depending on that income. So we said we can shut that down. We can shut down the rent part of it. And so we just kind of said, when it's time and it's safe again, we'll gather. And I kept, you know, thinking in June, I'm like, oh, we're going to easily be able to get together and do like an outdoor kind of singing thing. And then it just got further and further down the line where we realized, um, we haven't done anything with the chorus. And so it's actually now with my fall schedule that we're looking back into it. And I'm really hoping that what you said is true, that we'll find people who have always wanted to come and be a part of the chorus who, who weren't able to because it was a Sunday night conflict or because they couldn't, they couldn't get away from their, you know, responsibilities or make that commitment, but they can make a commitment to doing, you know, a one-time video or participate online. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also working on it with my unity singers at the unity of Columbia choir. So we'll be doing pretty much a virtual Christmas concert this year. And so that's a whole new learning curve for me. And I've been, as you could imagine, reading all the blogs and all the things to learn how to do that. Um, and it's, it's a lot, they say for, you know, a two minute long video that you can estimate at least 10 hours of work. So of mixing and doing all of the audio and visual work with it. So I'm excited about actually launching that. The, the editing side of everything that I see of the performances online is what always blows me away when you've got 30 musicians or 30 singers and somebody has very cleverly edited them all to be perfectly in sync with each other and perfectly balanced and harmonious. That's a huge amount of work. It is. And you know, when you're using, in my example, I'm using kind of a, an amateur program that's just, you know, GarageBand on my Mac. I don't have Logic Pro. And so it's been one of the discussions I've had with a couple of friends um, just saying, okay, what do I actually need to purchase so that I have the capability to have it sound as good as possible? You know, granted, it's a, it's a community-wide event, so I'm not looking to to have it sound like some of the stuff they've put out on Broadway and some of the things that go across your newsfeed that you're like, boy, that probably cost a lot of money. You know, I'm not I'm not the cast of Hamilton, you know, so it's that piece of it will be interesting to see how it kind of comes together. So over the summer that you haven't been performing, what component of performing do you miss the most? I realized, I think it was probably around early May, that I missed my friends. That as as a human, I'm fairly I'm fairly homebody anyway, except that I have a job that requires a lot of social activity. And so when I'm out and I'm working, I kind of have that specific time to see my friends and we engage in making music together. And so gigs are kind of like our happy hours, you know, and I really miss seeing and playing with my friends and I miss their energy. And I think uh, energetically speaking, just the act of making music and what that does to your body and the vibration and, you know, not to go down too far into, to, you know, woo woo land as far as that's concerned, <laughs> but tr genuinely speaking, I feel like it's, it's different. And I had the opportunity to sit and watch the filming of Travis McFarland and Molly Healy's concert out of the blind boon. And it was just the people who were filming the event, Travis and Molly, and then my partner and I got to watch. And I wept the first two numbers just to hear live music that wasn't coming out of my body in a space in the in the space I was in. And I wasn't expecting to get that emotional. <laughs> I, I apologize. I'm like, I am like the weep fest over here. But it was true, just the vibrational energy and being in that moment. I really miss that. I wonder when we do all gather together again, whether like where venues now have hand sanitized, they're going to have to have box of like paper tissues because <laughs> everyone is going to be so emotional at the first events that we all go back to, whether it's a theater piece or a music piece, just that sense of gathering is going to be so incredible. Absolutely. And even the summer with, you know, the brief stuff that we did at Talking Horse, I, I came home with the outdoor the outdoor gathering that Talking Horse did at Stevens Lake, I came home and just, I was super emotional just hearing my friends sing in real life, not on Zoom, not on a video. And um, it was just, it's healing. And I, I bet you're right. I bet we're going to need tissues. <laughs> we might want to buy some stock in them now, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
when we go back, we're going to cry. So amidst a summer of no live performances, basically, you have been busy working on a new EP entitled Sanctuary. Why did now feel like the right time to create this? Well, just kind of going back to, you know, having the space and the bandwidth to focus on it. I started recording this EP with, uh, I call them the man band, with the man band last March. So a year ago, twenty was that 2019 then, um, we started this process and then starting to listen to it and take it in and specifically Sanctuary just the song itself felt like something that maybe the world could use to hear. You know, I had friends I certainly wanted to send it to. And so I thought, you know, maybe if maybe this would be a balm for someone or just a little bit of comfort right now. And if you're going to do one, you might as well do the rest of them too. So (laughs) I, you know, this life had already been released in the end of 2019. And so it was kind of uh, those two were kind of the bookend to me of the EP And I wanted to make sure to kind of have them both out. So when did you write Sanctuary? I wrote Sanctuary at the end of 2019, going through uh, my divorce and having two really close people to me experiencing a, a deep depression. And so I wrote it for myself, for them. And then I started actually working it for Strange New Worlds, where I actually, you know, I wrote the song, and then I had harmony parts I wanted to add. And then I started thinking about what instrumentation I really wanted beyond piano. So it morphed into like a six month process of that particular piece. It feels so perfect for the moment. I think on the album, it's the one that spoke to me the most, because it does speak to the fact that we're all feeling this collective weight of a world which seems to be unraveling in in so many ways. And you have the line, when you wake up in the morning with your chest so heavy, you cannot breathe, another loss for humankind. And the world is raging, raging faster. Each day is some new battle. And that, that does feel, I think, how we're all processing the world right now. So it's interesting that you didn't specifically write it for this time. I didn't. Uh, you know, the friend that I had in mind, one of the friends I had in mind, had been diagnosed with um, COPD. And that was part of his expression of experiencing depression, you know, of having to grapple with kind of a long-term illness as a younger person and a chronic illness and how that's changed his life. And so the chest so heavy was really directly for him. And also just what grief in my body feels like. It's just that ache. And so you wake up and you're like, oh, it's still there. I think about the moments whenever, you know, you've had something horrible happen. And in the very early part of the morning, you don't remember that it's happened. Mm -hmm. And so there's that, those split seconds of reprieve from your, from your grief or your loss, and then it returns to your body. And so that was kind of what that was meant to be. But, you know, for COVID, it definitely applies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it wasn't intentionally for this time, but at that kind of universal part of grief. When you wake up in the morning With a chest so heavy You can't breathe And you look around for comfort And all you find is your pink heart on your sleeve Each day is some new battle Another piece you leave behind Each day is some new battle Another loss for humankind I don't know quite what to say But I'll come stay with you anyway Let this song, let it be your refuge A sanctuary I will always sing for you. I'll always sing for you. 
There are seven tracks on the album in total and they all feel very personal. I wonder which was the hardest one to share? Um, I think Give Love Away, which is the second track, is one of the ones that's the most personal for me just because it speaks directly to the divorce and also my want to try and, and have a baby and that not coming to fruition and kind of with the the dissolution of the marriage also came this idea of, you know, of family and building a family. And so that was kind of one that I was concerned about putting out just in the sense that it felt, it felt a little raw, but that part, I'm really grateful for how it turned out. And Will was incredible in the studio with, you know, going through it with me and kind of finding the balance of what we wanted the track to sound like. do you write songs that are so personal or so cathartic that you decide it is a song that's for your ears only? Do you have a giant file of Audra-only songs? <laughs> I certainly have um, several that have only been performed on tour. When Robin and I went on tour and also whenever I've performed out of town, that those are things that I do in front of strangers, but that oftentimes I don't perform in front of my community because they're just too close. They don't feel that close when I'm sharing them with people who don't really know me. But the folks, when you look, you know, Columbia is small. So when you're looking across, you know, into a crowd and you see your favorite humans, they, they know exactly what that song is about, whether you want them to or not. But, you know, when you're in Kansas City or Madison or someplace like that, it's a little bit like you can give the intro to the song and then it's whatever they want it to be. Well, there is a track called Vigil for Oscar. Tell us who Oscar is. Oscar is one of the lights in the world. He's one of my piano and guitar students, and uh, his mother is a friend of mine, and she also takes voice lessons. And Oscar is obsessed in our lessons with looping. So I'll pull up GarageBand, and I'll just let, you know, kind of like as a fun day in lessons, they can pull their favorite tracks off of GarageBand and start to create music and loop and just experiment with electronic music. And so I tell them, you know, we want drums, we want bass, we want this. So this is where you have to start. And they can pick from hundreds of samples that GarageBand gives you, which is amazing. And so he loves that. And upon this one, I actually wrote during COVID. I wrote that this summer. And I was really at home, just kind of, I call it musical decoupaging. I was just playing around and looping. And I was really thinking about Oscar and his generation and what they're, what they're experiencing right now. And, and really, you know, not to get too political, but to be political, what we're leaving them with. And I just kept thinking, I, I hope we can stay awake for them because I feel like we're, we are getting so incensed, like so numb to to what's happening in the White House. We're getting numb to the to the violence, where it's like just another day in America. And I hope he knows that that I'm staying awake. That I'm I genuinely want something more for him. And so it became really where I a track where I was looping and having fun and thinking about how much he loves to do that, but also just a, a prayer for him 
in my own way of saying, I'm, I'm staying awake and I, I want to see change and I hope I can be that change in some way. I think if anybody can, it is you, Audra. You have such a beautiful way with words and, and being able to move people. There is a very short instrumental piece on the album called Waltz for My Mother, um, which made me feel really emotional just listening to it. It's just a very gentle waltz. Can you talk about that one a little bit? So I, I at Talking Horse, we, Robin Anderson and Meg Phillips Crespi and I and Lou have done the Strange New Worlds, which is New Works concert for, you know, six years now. I say concert, but it's an event because sometimes it's theater, sometimes it's film. And I wrote that piece as a vocal piece for a friend to sing. And for whatever reason, the rest of the piece wasn't really worth anything. That one, it, as I worked it, I was like, I don't really like this piece, but I love this waltz. And with my mom really struggling with her, her health and dementia, I'm, not, I'm so far away from her that I can't necessarily be there to play for her. And I thought, you know, this is the kind of thing that I would want to, to play for her. It's simple, it's sweet, and it also there's a, a hint of Chopin-esque sadness to it that just it embodies how I feel right now, where I'm so grateful that we're still able to communicate on the regular right now because she does remember enough to be able to be on the phone and that kind of thing, but also the, the bittersweet quality of knowing what's happening and but being grateful. So that was kind of the inspiration of that track. It did take me back to my time with my father during his dementia and just how much music is able to touch people and reach people. Even somebody like my dad, who didn't own a single album, never listened to music. But when a group came over one Christmas and sang Christmas carols, suddenly my dad started singing out of nowhere. Never heard him sing in his life. And, and so when I listened to Waltz for My Mother, it just took me back to that moment with my father and how vital music is. And, you know, they say that so many things can go in the memory, but that's one of the things that will bring you right back, you know, like the smell and music, <laughs> our sense of smell and music. So that's a beautiful thing that somewhere embedded, it's, it's in the heart, you know, not in the mind. Right. So you mentioned that you worked with Will. So there was, even though we've been an era of social distancing, you did you record this at home or were you working with a studio for most of the production of the album? So we recorded all of the pieces on the album that have the band with me in the studio. That was in March and April of last year. And then everything else that you hear I did at home and then I took to him and then we mixed and mastered and did all of that stuff in the studio. And I would sit, you know, he would sit at the computer and I would sit far away. We'd be masked up and, and it was just the two of us kind of working in his, his awesome nook of the world. <laughs> That's one of my happy places. So there were some backing vocals on some of the tracks. And I was thinking, I was wondering if it was you kind of like a la Randy Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, yes. So the backup vocals on This Life and Smoke and Fire are Marissa Wood and Roshara Knight. And so first of all, it's crazy to have those two amazing singers as backup singers on your album. Um, because 20 feet from stardom. Exactly. Like, I cannot believe that I am asking Roshara and Marissa to sing backup. But you know, it's the quality of their voices. And I knew that they would mesh perfectly together. And they did. And then the other parts are me totally Randy Rainbow style. Yeah, you know. So besides Rashara and Marissa, who else is involved on the album? Uh, I have Caleb Alexander on guitar, uh, Justin Leopard from LA on cello, Travis McFarland on organ, Derek Enyard on percussion, and Zach Clark on bass. And then of course, Rashara and Knight and Marissa Wood on backup vocals. So in an age of Spotify and streaming music, how do you make money from releasing an album? Well, you know, you have to have so many Spotify followers and you have to have so many streams and you get on playlists and then hopefully, you know, you submit to license your stuff and hopefully maybe someone will use it as background music at a commercial or in a movie or, and at this point, recouping costs is great. 
for me, I really, especially since we can't tour right now, and for me, it was more about just wanting the music out there for my own person, especially because most of the songs were written in a time that I was really working through stuff as a human. And I'm the stuff I'm writing now is so different, and I'm ready to move on to that. So there's something just as an artist about saying, here's the timestamp of this time in my life, and now there's this to say for it. I've got this thing. And what happens financially is just what happens. The rest of it is, the rest of it is just cake. The, the idea that it's out there is really the emphasis. And it is a physical product. People can actually hold it in their hands yes, as well. I have a, <laughs> yes, you can actually buy a CD still from artists. And they love that because they get all the money from it. You know, I get, it's like 0.001 cent per play on Spotify. So anyone who thinks that, well, I pay my $10 for my Apple Music a month, it's, it's not going to the artists. But if you download it, the album, some of that does go. So I go through an aggregate called CD Baby, and they will send me a check for however many streams I get. So occasionally I'm like, well, look at there. I got a check for 35 bucks from that album I put out a year ago. That's cool. <laughs> but, you know, after a year. So and again, I'm a, I'm a small local artist. so It's not like I was expecting to have some sort of one hit wonder, but it is much more beneficial to buy the merch and buy the CDs from your artist for sure. Okay, so if we want to support you, we should buy it directly from you yes the official date is tomorrow for the launch does that entail anything specific yes i am having my it'll be on the digital platform so you can actually go and listen to it at will as many times as you want to and i'm having a small house concert series at my house and it was you know we were looking to go under 50 and i have a pretty large yard but then we had kind of this uptick in cases in columbia so now we're at 20 and under. So it'll be a very small crowd, but I'm excited just about sharing the music with people. And I have Roshara and my friend Travis and my friend Joel joining me. So I have a large deck. We're going to socially distance and then all the audience will be, I'm going to have this little chalk outline that I'm going to put on my <laughs> grass so that they know where they can sit. And uh, they bring all their stuff in, they take it all out. And hopefully we'll still be able to have that experience of just being together and having music be made. Well, let's go out with another track from Sanctuary. Tell us which one you would like us to end with. Oh, geez. Well, I mean, of all of them, I definitely think that um, gravity is the most uplifting. That's <laughs> kind of like, it's like the, hey, we're out of the wilderness. It's going to get, things are going to be okay. So that would probably be the one to end on. Okay. Well, Audra, thank you so much for chatting. It's always a joy to chat with you. And I love the album. You did give me a sneak peek of it. So congratulations. And uh, I will buy one from you personally. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for your support and just, and just listening in general. I'm really grateful for that. I appreciate it. Thanks, Audra. Thank you. I'm feet on the ground, dirt in my shoes. another week. If you want to get hold of a copy of Audra's new EP, check out her website at audracircle.com. And if you want to help protect live music, visit saveourstages.com to voice your support. All 
the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Michael Donovan and Audra Sergal. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song, Restless Heart, at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.